ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello and welcome to The World Today. It's Monday the 18th of December. I'm Samantha Donovan, coming to you from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation in Melbourne. Today, the trial of a prominent pro-democracy campaigner gets underway in Hong Kong. And Christmas checkout shock as the prices of mangoes, pineapples and Christmas pudding skyrocket. First today to far north Queensland and hundreds of rescues were performed overnight across the region with authorities calling in every boat they could find in Cairns. And the entire town of Wujul Wujul is likely to be evacuated as floodwaters continue to rise. Clean water remains a top concern and residents are being urged to conserve water. Elizabeth Cramsey reports. It was a cold, wet night for nine people, including a seven-year-old child stranded on a roof in far north Queensland. This morning, some good news from Queensland's new Premier, Stephen Miles. Uh, That group of people who were trapped on the roof of the hospital in Woodjil Woodjil have been able to uh, safely move to another location. But the community isn't out of the woods yet. It now appears likely that we will need to evacuate the entire town of Woodjil Woodjil. And so agencies are working across government and across levels of government to work out how to do that, uh, to safely get the community of Woodjil Woodjil to Cooktown to the PCYC there. Kylie Hanslow is the chief executive of the Woodjil Woodjil Aboriginal Shire Council. She explains how quickly the water rose. Oh, it rose about five metres in a period of only about maybe 10, 15 minutes, if that. It was, it was pretty, um, pretty intense, the... Um, the water rise was pretty, pretty huge and very quick and, you know, um, people were just moving up and moving up and moving up and going from house to house to house. And when that one flooded, we moved again. And um, there's also crocodiles swimming around in that water now because the crocs want to find the nice, calmer water than the, the rushing river water. She says the mass of water is hard to believe. But, you know, the water's come up in the town. It's really, it's gone over our depot. It came over the council building um, it's come up through the shop. It's come up everywhere. Um, the, the island, the community is a sea still. We expect the, the tide to come up again and make a lot of um, another rise at around about two o'clock when the high tide comes in or thereabouts. So um, we need people to move to higher ground at that time as well. Since ex-tropical cyclone Jasper, more than two metres of rain has fallen on parts of the region. The Bureau of Meteorology's Laura Vocal says while conditions are easing, people in flood-affected areas should stay on high alert. In those parts where we have seen that easing trend, it's important to note that the forecast for the rest of today is still for showers and storms. So we could see these showers producing large amounts of rainfall, so heavy showers and thunderstorms in those areas, noting that this rain won't be as widespread as what we've seen in the past 24 hours. Police Commissioner Katerina Carroll says there were hundreds of rescues overnight. Last night we had an extraordinarily challenging challenging evening, rescuing some 300 people with SES vessel, police assistance, civilian assistance, uh, QFAS and naval support, particularly in the areas of Machen's Beach, Yorkies Knob and Holloway's Beach, where I said um, up to about 300 people were rescued. 
also over 300 triple zero calls just for police and numerous more calls to QFES and to SES. She says access into some areas has been challenging. We have pre-deployed staff into Townsville to move staff into Cairns and the smaller communities around Cairns as soon as possible to not only assist with the current response but also assist with the recovery over the next few days. Richard Barker is the CEO of Cairns Airport. The nearby Barron River um, reached the highest levels since records uh, began, or well, certainly we have since 1910, so well over 100 years, and it rose four and a half metres. And so we have a significant levee around the airport and water came over that for the first time ever, um, flooding uh, the entire runway and uh, our general aviation precinct. And it will remain closed today. What we need to do is, is, is three things really, is we need to pump the water out, uh, we need to clean the runway and then we need to check the lighting. And uh, once we've done that, we'll be, um, which will take at least all day, uh, we'll be in a position to make decisions about uh, when we're safe to reopen. Richard Barker, the CEO of Cairns Airport. That report from Elizabeth Cramsey. Well, as we stock up on food in preparation for next week's celebrations, new data out today shows the prices of summer staples like mangoes, pineapples and Christmas puddings have all gone up. The new figures show some foods have decreased in price, but overall the cost of feeding ourselves has skyrocketed in the last 12 months. And the cost of living crisis is Fighting the government, with opinion polls not offering the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, much festive cheer. David Sparks has more. As Australians stock up for the festive season, the cost of groceries is hitting hard. Deakin University has released its latest food price tracking data and it shows Christmas puddings, mangoes, pineapples and potatoes are all up on last year. On the other hand, prices for cherries, peaches and avocados are lower than this time last year, as are prawns and legs of ham. But overall, the news is bad. And what we see is year-on-year increases, and again, it's probably no surprise to any of the consumers that prices are going up again. Deakin University's Christina Zorbas led the research. Um, Some things have gone up, some things have gone down. Um, But for the most part, things are still increasing and you've got basic things like bread and milk going up by another 5% or so compared to last year. Um, But then you've got decreases in some summer fruits like apricots and peaches, which are a bit cheaper. Food prices will make this a tough Christmas for many households. Matt Tilley works with charity organisation Food Bank in Victoria. The start of the year, we were feeding about 50,000 Victorians a day. Now it's about 57,000 and we've been around for 90 years so to see an increase uh, that sort of 15% in one year is phenomenal. And it seems the cost of living crisis is damaging the popularity of the Prime Minister Anthony Albanese and his government. He was asked this morning on AM what he needs to do to get his mojo back. Well we'll continue to examine ways of taking the pressure off Australians whilst not Also uh, adding to inflation, we'll continue to roll out our strengthening of Medicare that we're doing. We're opening urgent care clinics. We'll continue to roll out our plan for a future made in Australia. The Prime Minister says global inflation pressures are taking their toll on the Australian economy. Dr Sarah Cameron is an expert on public policy at Griffith University. She says voters have a habit of holding governments to account for economic problems, something she says was evident in last year's federal election outcome. What the results from the Australian election study show is that 
cost of living was the biggest issue concern for voters in that election. We also saw that two in three voters said that the economy had become worse over the previous year at at the time of that 2022 election. And that was the most pessimistic attitudes that voters have had about economic conditions in over 30 years since 1990. And she says the Albanese government faces the same pressures. Whoever's to blame for household costs, the political impact is clear. Cos Samaras is Director of Political Communication Consultancy, Redbridge Group. Governments sometimes have this thing, uh, when they call it the theme of the day, that they will run out and, and do press releases on and press conferences on. They probably cannot afford a theme of the day approach. They need to have a theme of the next 18 months and it needs to be the economy. And, they can, and if they, they, they cannot deviate from that. Got any idea what that should look like? I know you're not an economist, but... Yes. Well, um, more of a, from a political perspective, they will need to start tackling some of the areas within the broader economy that, that that voters blame for the inflation. So they think that retailers are gouging them, for example. The two big uh, retailers, in, in, in particular Coles and Woolworths, there, there is no reason why the, the, the Commonwealth government should not have a look at why certain prices, price rises are occurring within that sector. That will send a very strong signal to, to consumers, but in particular these voters that we've been talking about, that they're in the corner to be released. Someone's trying to help them and address what they think is a bit of injustice going on. Cos Samaris from the Redbridge Group speaking with David Sparks. On ABC Radio across Australia, streaming online and on the ABC Listen app, this is The World Today. Thanks for your company. In Hong Kong, the national security trial of one of the city's most prominent pro-democracy advocates is getting underway. Media mogul Jimmy Lai has been in jail for three years. His newspaper, Apple Daily, was unflinching in its criticism of China's government and human rights groups and the US government say his arrest was politically motivated. The UK's new Foreign Secretary, former Prime Minister David Cameron, has joined the calls for Mr Lai's release after meeting with his son last week. East Asia correspondent Kathleen Calderwood has more. In an advertisement from the 90s, Hong Kong mogul Jimmy Lai sits in the centre of the darkened room, a bright red apple perched on his head. As the camera circles dramatically around him, he is hit with arrow after arrow shot by masked attackers, but he remains perfectly still, the apple undisturbed. Now the 76-year-old Mr Lai is again at the centre of Beijing's sights as his long-awaited national security trial begins. I think it really takes a lot of guts to stay in Hong Kong despite despite all the threat that he's had for the last 30 years for, for his beliefs. That's one of Mr Lai's sons, Sebastian, who now lives in Taiwan and can't return to Hong Kong for fear of arrest. A symbol of Hong Kong's success, Jimmy Lai arrived in the city from mainland China as a boy all on his own. His publications were known for their criticisms of Beijing and Mr Lai, even in his 60s and 70s, was a regular feature at protests 
including in 2019 when millions turned out in opposition to a proposed extradition law. But in August 2020, Mr Lai was arrested after the city introduced the sweeping and draconian national security law in what it says was a necessary move to quell pro-democracy protests and unrest. While he was initially granted bail, Mr Lai has been in prison since December 2020. His famous Apple Daily newspaper shut within a year. Here's Sebastian Lai again. My source on his prison conditions was the uh, Associated Press pictures that they managed to take of him. And, you know, he was led around by two guards. He looked a lot skinnier, older. It was pretty heartbreaking. From my understanding, he's in solitary confinement. While Mr Lai has already been given sentences for other matters, including a lease dispute, this trial has been delayed several times. With no jury and the possibility of life imprisonment, Sebastian Lai has no faith his father will be given a fair hearing. It's a kangaroo court, three government-appointed judges, the security minister boasting of a 100% conviction rate. Keelan Gallagher, KC, from Mr Lai's international legal team, says this is one of the worst examples she's seen of a government weaponising the law against journalism. Jimmy Lai has been targeted to try to send a chilling example to any other journalist who dares to speak out in Hong Kong. Last week, China's foreign ministry spokesperson called Mr Lai a notorious anti-China element and accused him of working with foreign forces to undermine national security. For now, Sebastian Lai will be watching on from Taiwan as he awaits another Christmas without his father. This is Kathleen Calderwood reporting from Taipei for The World Today. To the war in the Middle East and hungry people in Gaza have mobbed aid trucks in the border city of Rafa as the World Food Programme warns more than a million people in the enclave are starving. The Karem Shalom border crossing with Israel has been opened to the trucks for the first time since the war started. This report from Rachel Hayter. Desperate men cling to the sides of a moving aid truck in the Gaza border city of Rafa. The truck swerves and boxes fall to the ground and split open. A mob of people close in, small boys among them, gathering up bottles of precious water. Men are travelling atop other trucks. They're masked and carrying sticks and appear to be guarding the cargo. The World Food Programme says more than half of the 2.3 million people in Gaza are officially starving. This aid has come via the Rafah border crossing from Egypt. A few kilometres away, a border crossing from Israel, Kerem Shalom, has just opened for the first time since this war started. That's being welcomed by the French Foreign Minister, Catherine Colonna. The opening of the Kerem Shalom border post goes in the right direction. It had been a long time coming, so we must salute the move, of course. But it is necessary to act more resolutely and faster before the catastrophe becomes a tragedy for the two million human beings, men and women like us. Minister Colonna has met with her Israeli counterpart to reiterate French calls for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza. The United Kingdom and Germany are calling for a sustainable ceasefire. The US Defence Secretary Lloyd Austin is meeting with Israeli military leaders today to discuss what he describes as the steps Israel is taking to mitigate civilian harm. 
The Gaza Health Ministry says more than 18,700 Palestinian people have been killed in this war so far and 50,000 have been injured. Gazan health officials say overnight a 13-year-old girl was killed in the maternity building in the Nasser Hospital in Han Yunus. This young woman holding a small girl describes what happened. We were sitting inside and I was putting my daughter to sleep. My neighbours were around and being treated from an injury. Suddenly we saw smoke and there was rubble on us. I couldn't see from the smoke. I held my daughter and started screaming and calling for help and I jumped from the bed. The mother of the killed girl was injured in her head. In a voice note shared with the ABC, Palestinian woman Ruba Akila, who's staying with a host family in Rafah, says refugees are still arriving from other parts of the territory. There are so many people who are coming to Rafah, over 100, uh, I mean, we are here over 100 million, and even people from the other parts of Gaza, like, uh, and including parts in the south, like Khan Yunis, are fleeing to Rafah. I want people to know that we don't want to leave our homes if god forbid you know we have to leave our homes forever in gaza city then we didn't want to do that a funeral was held yesterday for one of the three israeli hostages shot dead by israeli troops in gaza after being wrongly identified as a threat Signs reading SOS and help three hostages in Hebrew were found on the walls of a Gaza building where they were hiding. Israel's military chief, Herzi Halevi, has told troops inside Gaza not to repeat the mistake. If it's two Gazans with a white flag coming out to surrender, would we shoot at them? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. That's not the IDF. I'm telling you, whoever is confused here, even those who fought us and now lay down their arms and raise their hands, we arrest them. We don't shoot them. Israeli officials estimate more than 110 hostages are still being held in Gaza. They were kidnapped and taken to the territory on October 7, when Hamas gunmen launched their rampage in southern Israel, killing 1,200 people. Meanwhile, the IDF has released vision of what it's described as a massive tunnel system that spans well over four kilometres. Rachel Hayter reporting. As many of us prepare for summer trips in the car, safety advocates are calling on governments to do more to cut the death toll on Australia's roads. The nation has just recorded its highest 12-month road toll since March 2018. And experts say governments are failing to adopt some obvious measures to keep people safe. Eliza Getzi has more. As you pack the car and fill up on fuel ahead of your summer holiday, you're joining a growing number of Australians hitting the road this summer. It's a trend that's been described as revenge travel, as Australians locked down during the COVID period take time to reconnect. Professor Raphael Jubietta is a road safety researcher at the University of New South Wales in Sydney. People are wanting to travel more. They're wanting to enjoy their holidays. Uh, they're wanting to enjoy their freedoms. Uh, what we're seeing is uh, a lot more vehicles on the road. But as more of us hit the roads, the risks are clear to see. Deaths recorded on Australian roads this year are at a five-year high. It's not only the lives that are lost, it's the 40,000 debilitating injuries that are clogging up the trauma wards around Australia. The Australian Automobile Association says new data shows in the 12 months to the end of November, 1,253 people died on roads across Australia, marking a 6% increase compared to the previous 12 months. 
South Australia saw a 61% increase, while there was a 24% hike in New South Wales. Just last month, five people were killed when an SUV crashed into a pub in the regional Victorian town of Dalesford. Leslie Hewitt is from the Dalesford Council. There's still a, a sense of loss, a sense of trauma, disbelief, and a sense that... Um, of the fragility of life. I know that uh, people are still accessing the free counselling service that's being provided by Central Islands Rural Health. People are still concerned and some people still avoid going down the street where it occurred. So there is an ongoing impact. And earlier this year, the Hunter Valley community was hit by one of Australia's worst road tragedies when 10 wedding guests were killed in a bus crash. While these tragedies are fresh in our memories, the AAA's managing director, Michael Bradley, says there's a lack of political will to stop them happening again. We know what causes death and injury on the road. What we don't know is what's the best way of preventing that. And we've got eight states and territories in this country who all have different approaches to these interventions, but none of them put into the public domain the information we need to have an evidence-based discussion about this. He's calling for more transparency and for the states to work together to improve road safety. You've got 1,250 families who are preparing for a Christmas without a loved one this year, and we think that they're deserving of an evidence-based conversation about a problem that's going to put 100 Australians in hospital just today. Michael Bradley says AAA polls suggest Australian voters are cynical about government action on road safety. You think about what happens when the Commonwealth gives states money for hospitals or, um, or when they fund universities or housing. Every such agreement is full of data sharing requirements. Yet transport in 2024 remains this sort of money go around where nobody's asked to explain what they've done with the money. Rafael Gibietta agrees it's time for governments to be bold to reduce the road toll. One thing that could be introduced straight away, I know it's politically unpalatable, any road which does not have what I call a four-star or five-star Australian Road Assessment Program star rating, the speed limit should be set to 80 kilometres per hour. Now, these are roads which don't have medium barriers, very narrow shoulders. They don't have the tactile rumble strips that wake you up if you stray off the road or you doze off. He also wants to see suburban residential street speed limits reduced to 40 kilometres an hour. That report from Eliza Getsey and Oliver Gordon. The lead-up to Christmas is stressful for many families, particularly because the cost of living remains high. Toy and food donations are often a huge help, but some support services are reporting they're not getting as many donations as usual, even though demand is rising. Julia Andre reports. Dale William Wicker drops into the Narang Neighbourhood Centre on Queensland's Gold Coast twice a week. Oh, it's the best thing ever, yeah. yeah. When you're living it and doing it hard, it's sort of um, it's a real blessing. Living on the streets for the past three years, a hot meal and a shower are a luxury. Yeah, good to have a convo and, and catch up and bring a few people in when I can that are on the street. Today, Dale has bad sunburn and is covered in mosquito bites. The tent he's living in under an overpass is ripped and broken. Usually, he'd ask for food for Christmas. This year, he's hoping for a sturdier tent. Vicky Rose is the manager of the Narang Neighbourhood Centre. We've asked for donations for tents, um, sleeping bags, 
We just had our shower and laundry room built. And so we're looking for donations for soap powder, you know, shampoos, things like that. The support service relies on donations, but this year they've been slow to come in. We would have got donations for presents for kids and they would have come from everywhere. And here we are, we've had no toy donations, none. At Maruchador on the Sunshine Coast, support service Sunny Kids has been lucky to receive Christmas donations. But Chief Executive Kathleen Hope says cost of living pressures are taking a toll. They're not giving as much as what they have in previous years. Just everybody's feeling the pinch at the moment and we're really seeing that and what's coming our way. And that means demand is greater than what her service can provide. People who are middle income earners who have never had to reach out for support, who are now asking for support just with basic essentials, paying for utilities, food and Christmas gifts are really, they're a last thought for them. Despite supporting close to 2,500 people on the Sunshine Coast this year, Sunny Kids has a waiting list for help. So Kathleen Hope is counting on a late influx of donations. We have within our community a construct that if you're a good child, Santa comes and delivers you gifts, and if you're not, then you don't get anything. So it, it has a huge impact. It's more than just a gift. A week away from Christmas, a little help goes a long way. Julia Andre reporting. And that's The World Today for this Monday. Thanks for your company. I'm Samantha Donovan. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.